Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Joe Francis Penn. And in today's interview, I talk to Matt Buckman about his cycle trip around the world. But it's much more than that. It's actually a discussion about what really matters and how sometimes leaving everything can help you find who you really are. Matt was a successful business consultant, but when he lost everything, he set off to cycle the world. It was a way to escape his old life, but also to find a new path. And what's interesting is we really talk about how Matt had got to this point and he'd created what he thought was the life you're meant to have with a house and the perfect house, in fact, for a relationship that he didn't have time to cultivate. And he set off to find the answer to it all somewhere else. And When I was talking to Matt, it really echoed with my own story. In the year 2000, I was consulting in London and I had all the things you're meant to have. And I just was not happy. So I took off and went to find myself in the Australian outback. And of course, um, Matt and I talk about Australia. He had uh, an experience there in the desert as I did. And of course, I talked to Amanda Markham about the Northern Territories uh, last week. So that clearly is a very magical part of the world. So, um, and I also talked a bit about my own journey of escape in episode three, uh, and also episode 20 was my own trip uh, in Australia. But I never went on this sort of long, uh, long term travel. I've always done mine in smaller batches. So sort of travel for three or four months and then stop, do some work, earn some money. (laughs) and then go off again. And that's kind of how I've done it. Whereas Matt did this one really big trip. And what's interesting is he says, I'm not a traveller. I'm not driven to travel, Uh, which was really interesting given what he did. But it was the lessons learned about life that kept him going, the revelations about himself and the people he met, not so much the places he visited. And this is important because travel really does give us perspective and helps you uh, feel grateful for the little things. Matt also mentions that he has still has very little connection to place and yet he was homesick and I'm really exploring this idea of connection to place on this show because it's something I long for uh, in the discussion on uh, third culture kids TCKs a few shows back when we talked to Rachel about Djibouti uh, I really that really struck home to me because I feel like that, like a bit of a wanderer. But as I live longer here in Bath, I get to start to feel that maybe I do have a connection to this sense of place. And Matt talks about a headland near where he lives. And for me, it's the canal uh, where I walk here in Bath pretty much every week. And uh, I will definitely talk about that in another episode. I'm still really trying to frame what the my personal episodes are about. <laughs> and in the meantime, by interviewing people, I really learn 
what I think, uh, which is great and why this is such an important personal project for me. And I'm glad that it's touched uh, many of you as well. Thank you for your emails. Uh, you can, of course, email me, joe at booksandtravel.page. So jo at booksandtravel.page. I love to hear from you uh, about what you think about the podcast. So, right, let's get into the interview with Matt about his physical and emotional journey cycling around the world. M.L. Buckman is the author of over 60 romance, thrillers, sci-fi and fantasy books, as well as non-fiction. And today we're talking about his memoir, Midlife Crisis on Wheels, A Bicycle Journey Around the World. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hello and thank you. Hey, <laughs> it's great to have you on the show. So look, this is this is a hell of a book. It's really fantastic. But I want to start at the beginning. What led up to the decision to cycle around the world? Like what was happening in your life? I, I tell people it's really easy to launch on a trip like this. All you have to do is lose everything. <laughs> I lost because I had a business partner with a different definition of the word integrity than mine. I ended up losing not only my job and my business, but my career. And that ended up because I burned bridges from Houston to Calgary to Denver. To, I mean, it was astonishing what the train wreckage was. And I ended up, I was going to lose the house. And I was sitting in this house. I'd spent seven years remodeling with every penny I had and all the few minutes of time. And a friend said, well, if you sell the house, and it was like, huh, okay, I'm going to lose the house, swallowed that. And I started looking for the second half of that question. And I was out for a walk and got nearly clipped by a cyclist. And it was like, oh, I could bicycle around the world. And suddenly <laughs> it made sense because nothing else in my life did. I was, I was single and burned out and frustrated and angry and a workaholic that had no work. And so I sold everything and got on a bicycle. <laughs> I love that. I mean, a workaholic with no work. I'm a workaholic. I understand that. That's a pressure, oh. you know, forget everything else. <laughs> but but it's interesting there because, um, you know, on, on a serious note, so life was a train wreckage and you had this house. So often it seems that we spend a lot of energy and time and emotional stress building things like a house, um, you know, the perfect thing to have, but that's not what really matters. Do you, you mean, do you think almost that this was going to happen, that you hadn't really addressed what was important and you'd spent all this time on, uh, you know, building a career that wasn't for you and a house you didn't want? Uh, yes and no. I think that the, what occurred was inevitable because of who I was being. Because at that time in my life, I was still under the belief that if I just try harder, it will work no matter how much. And if it isn't working, try harder. So I designed and built the house for the family I never had time to find. And that was my motivation for remodeling this house is I made it the perfect house for the wife and the office and the one kid and the dog run and the vegetable garden and the master kitchen that... I could throw big parties out of and, you know, it was this beautiful place with no social life. I was building this career where I was 
similar to you. I was consulting up into the top levels. I was designing major IT systems and security systems, and I had no life. And at some point, my body and my career and everything said, and the universe basically said, okay, enough of this. We're going to give you a wake-up call you can't ignore. Mm, and that certainly was. And I mean, yeah, and I really resonate, resonate with, with your story. I didn't cycle around the world, but I left my job so many times. I was just like, right, mm-hmm. I'm done. And I would travel and then I would go back again. Um, but you did something a bit bigger. So let's let's talk about um, what what was in your mind? Like, how did you tackle the fear of the unknown? Because if I think even now, I mean, that you know, you did this uh, a few years ago now, but we're, with now, we even with the f- phones and the internet and everything, it still is hell of an unknown, even just to cycle to the next town or two. So how did you tackle that fear of the unknown or any other fears you, you had? Uh, I don't know quite where it came from, but it started young. Part of it was I'm from the uh, I'm an IBM brat, which my dad was an IBM, which stands for I've been moved. (laughs) So so I had very little connection to place. I got out of college and I went, gee, I'm tired of the East Coast. I'd grown up in the northeast of the U.S. So I tossed a coin and went to Seattle and put my life in my car and drove across. And everybody said, oh, my God, that's so brave. And to me, it wasn't a question of bravery. It was just like, let's see what's over there. And when I fear something that built up to the level where when I fear something, I attack it because I refuse to be bound by my fears. And that's the thing I've never really thought about the origin of, but it served me in many strange ways for years. Uh, The way I got into IT was I, you know, I knew computers and I'd used them. But my first real corporate job, they had three computers and he bought two networking cards and they said, let's build a computer network. And this is 1985 before such things were happening. And I said, "Okay." And I went in with no fear and said, "Okay, I can solve this somehow. Let me tinker with it until I can. However. That trip was. Constant facing of fears. Um, I had written a fair number of trips and they built up, you know, you don't, you don't leap off the deep end unless you're really nuts, which I've done before, (laughs) but um, you do it in stages. You do that stretch zone. And I always push the stretch zone out toward the panic zone, but I'm always trying to stretch. And so I would do a bike ride, with friends around a local mountain. And then I did a ride across the state with a group. And then I did another ride down the coast to New Zealand by myself. And so I'd been building up. And so to get on a bike and do a trip sort of made sense, but I Mm. didn't know each stage of it was terrifying in a way. And I kept having to face and conquer each of those fears until by the end of the trip, I was going, wow, I can actually be good at things. And that was a revelation to me at 35. That was a revelation. It's I can be good. 
<laughs> yeah, I can be good at staying alive at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is which is kind of great. So you just give us um give us an idea of of the the route you took and uh I guess any moments you specifically remember that were, you know, really incredible memories. Oh my goodness. Yeah, let me boil down 18 months. Yeah. Okay, the, <laughs> just give the us the route, highlight. <laughs> <laughs> the route first is I rode from Seattle to LA as a warm-up because I wanted to do it where I could speak the language. And because my next stop was Japan, where I spent, uh, I went north for the Sorry, did you, fl- did you fly, you flew to Japan or you got a boat? Yeah, or? no, I flew, flew I flew mm-hmm. in between. Um, and I flew, uh, I went to Hokkaido for the winter. And then just as it started being spring up there, I rode into the worst monsoon in recent Japanese history on the main islands. So that was a very wet two months of my life. From there, I went, uh, I was supposed to meet a friend to ride in Vietnam. And this is before Vietnam had opened up to Americans. But he had loved the country when he was there during the war. He was always going AWOL because he would just hitch up and down the coast because he loved the country so much. He bailed on me. 48 hours before I was supposed to be there. So I ducked through Korea and went and rode across the Australian outback. I couldn't quite do Vietnam on my own. And it's one of my real regrets on the trip. Uh, It was just, it was, that was where my fear threshold was too high. Mm. Uh, So I rode across the Australian outback. I dove the Great Barrier Reef and I'll come back to some of the highlights in a moment. And I was all set to continue because I'm a planner. I had promised I wouldn't write it down, but I had a four year, five continent, uh, six continent, perfect plan in my head. So I was had a sailboat lined up to take me to New Zealand. I was going to spend the winter there, come back across Sydney. I had this whole thing. I was homesick from the first day I got on the bike. <laughs> I'm not, and this will sound really weird for somebody who spent 18 months living off a bicycle. I'm not a traveler. I'm not driven to travel. Um, as a little kid, I would imagine these great trips of with a sailboat, but it was about the sailing, not the travel. And my dream was to be an airline pilot, which I couldn't do because I'm partially colorblind. But uh, I got my basic plane license before I found that out. But again, it was the the challenge of that that I found fascinating. So here I was miserable on one of the most beautiful beaches in pristine far north Queensland. And I wanted to be home and I want and I couldn't figure out why I had to keep traveling. And I had the first it was a true epiphany. It slammed in one night and it was life does not have to be perfect. Good is triumph enough. And I had spent 35 years striving to be perfect. I am a child of adult alcoholics. Perfection was my chosen role. If I'm just perfect enough, everything will work. And um, I realized that that one revelation was sufficiently worthwhile and important 
that I had to keep traveling. I couldn't go home yet because if I got one more like that, it would be worth another year of travel. So I said goodbye to the sailboat. I managed to get another couple, uh, my slot. So I was able to help some people out getting to New Zealand. And I went and I turned and I just followed the sun for the next 12 months. I went Indonesia, Singapore, India, Israel, Greece, Eastern Europe, and across to France. And almost daily, the universe was slapping me upside the head with some other revelation of the choices I'd made over 35 years and the choices I wanted to make. I think probably the most beautiful place I ever was, was in the middle of the outback. Two, 300 kilometers from anywhere. And I come around this corner and it's all red sand desert with scrub trees. And um, I came around this corner and there was an acre in full bloom. There'd been some weird rainfall. It was the middle of the dry. No, it's the, yeah, it was the dry season. Hmm. Um, But this one acre had just the wildflowers had said now. And I just stopped and sat there for an hour and watched these flowers be beautiful in the middle of all this stark wilderness. And I loved the outback. I, I loved camping because I camped wild. So I was, there were nights where I knew there was nobody within 50 kilometers of me. And it was just spectacular. Um, <laughs> Just, just, uh, just to interrupt you, there, it's so interesting because the interview that will go out before yours is about the Northern Territory and the outback, and and huh. I've talked about this as well. I think it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Is that red earth and the stars, and you know, just the the, stars, the, yeah, incredible, right? And the silence, mm. the the to the point where. Mother Nature is is talking at you. Just, oh, I loved it. (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) I'll definitely be listening to that podcast. Um, The most important place, oddly enough, was a horrid little town uh, called Maumere on the south of of Flores Island in Indonesia. And most of these little third world towns, they're especially in those outer islands are pretty run down. There's not a lot going for them. The people are okay. The food is only moderately dangerous. <laughs> now, Mary was a wreck and it took, I was with a couple of other Westerners that day and it turned out that we each had different pieces of information. I'd been in the country about two weeks and a, we put it together a tidal wave had come through about six months before and killed a third of the town in about three minutes. So 5,000 people had died there in a period of three minutes. Oh my goodness. And it had devastated the town and they were rebuilding. So what we were seeing was all of the flat concrete pads used to have grass huts on them. All of the concrete buildings, every wall that was parallel to the ocean was gone. But out of the rubble, there were these little pockets where they had rebuilt a room or 
half of a restaurant or they were digging out at an ungodly scale and they were the nicest people I've ever met in my life anywhere. And I found somebody who was, it was, he stopped to help me learn his language. I was sitting there trying to get the right pronunciation for a word and he stopped. We talked for hours and I asked him about that finally. And he said, we've learned that in a moment we can be gone. So what's more important than sitting here and sharing our cultures and making a friendship? It was a life-changing moment for me. And he, I finally asked him, you know, what, how do you stay positive? How do you stay focused on what's important? And he said, oh, that's the easiest thing. And he touched his heart and he said, good heart. He touched his head, said, good thoughts. And then he pointed forward and said, automatic good action. Mm. And that's what I try to live by. If I come from my heart before my head, I get automatic good action. And it's been, it was true. It carried me around the rest of the world. Yeah, well, and it, yeah, I mean, also coming back to what you said, life does not have to be perfect. It, it just oh, has to be life. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. just, you know, those and those people rebuilding. And I mean, I think that, that that's one of the most important things about travel. And, uh, you know, there's these terrible studies they do, especially on Americans. They do it all the time, you know, uh, where are the, where is this country or that country? And people don't know where countries oh. are in the world, you know? <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, this perspective that people are the same in the most important way and yet different in other ways is, is just so critical. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's something I try to capture in my writing is it's one of the reasons I write about places all over the world is I want to say, oh, and these are people. Oh, and these are people. And, oh, isn't this an interesting place setting thought? Um, and sometimes I have to turn them into villains because of the kind of books I write, but sometimes <laughs> they're heroes or sometimes they're just on the side. But well, that's the thing. There are bad people all over the world, just as there are good people yeah. all over the world, right? <laughs> yeah. But, um, I love that international aspect of my writing and I couldn't have done that without this trip. So that was a, completely unexpected benefit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just uh, on people, because you set off alone and, um, you know, you, you were going to meet a friend and you met some other people. Uh, so what would, the, but like you just talked about some of the most important, that important moment in the desert, for example, you were alone. And this is something I feel is always difficult with travel. It, you know, how do you balance being super lonely, like really alone or, um, but facing that, that loneliness and learning from it or meeting people, being sociable, you know, w where did the balance come for you with people? It, it, it <laughs> a couple of funny aspects to that. When I did the trip in New Zealand, which was three weeks, there were cyclists everywhere. It's one of the most cycled toured places ever with good reason. It's a wonderful place to ride. Um, there was never alone time. And so that was my picture when I set out around the world was, okay, I'm going to meet people on the road. 
And sure enough, on um, my second week along the Oregon coast, I met this lovely British couple and we overlapped, our roots overlapped for about three days. And I went, great, this is what the trip's going to be like. The next person I rode with was a full year later. (laughs) I was alone for a year. And the only time I ran into people, and I was wild camping a lot to save money because I was broke. Um, I did 18 months on the road for $10,000. So <laughs> I, I was living very low. I was buying, you know, bartering for groceries and cooking on my camp stove. Um, but the people I met, I'm a fairly severe introvert. You know what that means. But it was the meeting of them. It always happened naturally. It always happened organically. I would be sitting somewhere studying a language or uh, sitting there tinkering with my bike, fixing something. And somebody would stop by and ask why, what I was doing. The nine questions, of course, you have to get through the nine questions. You know, where are you going? Where are you from? Why are you doing this? That kind of thing. Mm. Um I wanted to have a t-shirt made that had the nine answers on the back. (laughs) (laughs) Just like here, let's get over that. And, um, but the, the thing about cycle touring that's really unusual is from the, even when you're with a group, the moment you kick the pedal high, you're alone. So, and for me, that was the real gift of travel was I got to spend 18 months thinking about every choice I'd made in 35 years and the influences that had made me make those choices. And then I got to think about all of the choices I was not going to make in the next 35 years. And um, that gift of time is something we really have lost in our culture. And it's something that I have to fight to remember, right? I'm trying to run a writing career and we've just moved across the country and we have friends and I have writing groups and I want to record audio and it gets us all wrapped up in that world. And I forget what it's like to go out and just sit in silence. So Mm -hmm. actually there's, there's a headland nearby where I live that for some reason, when I walk onto that headland, the world goes quiet. And I've always looked for places like that. So I try to at least once a week, even if it's snowy and bitter cold and, you know, minus 10 wind chill, I try to go and find that moment where I can sit there and be in silence and just quiet so I can hear what my life is doing around me. Mm, Yeah, I think that's why I walk on the canal here a lot. um, And it's kind of like a meditation. I go there so often that it becomes you know, it becomes part of that background. I don't have, yeah. because when, you know, when you travel, you're always like looking around or, you know, trying to figure out the food or the money or, you know, trying mm-hmm. to avoid a pothole or <laughs> whatever you're right, doing, and, right. you know, so things are always stimulating. Whereas when you know somewhere, it, it becomes more about, like you say, being still. Um, but I, I do want to come back. On, so at the moment on your cycle trip around the world, it all sounds pretty zen and incredible and amazing. <laughs> But there have to have been some moments. Painful and scary and (laughs) dysentery and being chased by elephants. Okay. Well, no, no. You have so so tell us like some of the some of the moments or anything that you that were were kind of crazy, you know, or bad or difficult. Um, 
Wow, there were. <laughs> I didn't get along well with Japan. And it wasn't just that I rode in the rain for six straight weeks. Um, there's a culture there out in the countryside that is incredibly parochial by my standards. Now, mind you, this is the 1990s that I actually made this trip. It took me four drafts in 25 years to figure out how to write this book. <laughs> um, but the way women were treated and sidelined and not allowed to speak in my presence because there was a male there who wouldn't let them. And I got, I ran into it constantly. I was never in a big city. I was on a bike. So I was staying in the countryside and I ran into it so constantly that I literally couldn't stand my last week in Japan. So I went and I found a closed campground I bought a week's food and I hid in the high weeds of a closed campground <laughs> and I lived and they had just the day I had to leave to get to the airport. Um, they had just started coming in with the weed eaters to take out the high weeds. So there are these six guys there with their weed eaters and suddenly fully loaded touring bike, like, you know, wraparound shades, helmet, the whole bit comes roaring up out of the back of the campground pops over the hillside it sees these six guys waves and keeps going <laughs> um i'd found a couple people to travel with maybe in india and i was trying to get to them and i had gone off on a different route to because i wanted to see cochin which they'd never they'd already been to so we were going to meet up in a different town and um on the way, I got dysentery, and I didn't quite know that yet. And so it was getting harder and harder to ride. The, the gut pain was incredible. And I'd, I'd ridden through colds and flus before, but so it's physically hurting me to ride. And I realize I need to get a bus. I've got my whole life on a touring bike. So this is 110 pounds of gear, four panniers, sleeping bags. My whole life is on this thing. And I pull into the insanely crowded bus station that is India. And I'd been treated wonderfully all through the country. This one town, people start trying to steal things off the bike. <laughs> and I, they were crowding in closer and closer. It got to the point where I actually had to take my bike pump and beat them back. <laughs> and I'm, I'm whacking people's hands as they try to undo my panniers, which are locked to the bike. I mean, I'm not a fool, but they start undoing straps. And so I'm, I start, I finally have to ride away and I go and I sit somewhere for an hour in a construction site. And I come back thinking, okay, maybe that group of bad people is clear. Same thing. So I end up riding away with dysentery. Um, it was insanely hard. India was the hardest travel I've ever done. I also met incredible people all over the place, not in that town. Um, for some reason, it was concentrated right there. Uh, but getting to those people or going home, going home was always a big draw. And I always 
it was always the hardest thing I did was to ride past an airport. Mm. That was always insanely difficult. Yeah, was- no, it's it's interesting though because I, I almost feel like the the lows are as important as the highs with yeah. travel because in again in like in your daily life we optimize our daily life for comfort you know on a certain level and and we, we have an occasional high and then the occasional low but you can have highs and lows like in one hour while traveling <laughs> yeah yeah because so there I am riding along with dysentery I finally bribed somebody with a jeep to take me up this insane hill that i couldn't ride and i ride into the mutamalai animal preserve so here we are an hour and a half after that bus station and there's a tiny little sign there's a big sign that says welcome to mutamalai animal preserve and about a half kilometer later there's a little sign way up high in the trees that says animals may bite (laughs) okay so I'm riding along thinking, okay, I'm only a day late. Hopefully my friends will still, my new friends will still be there. Turns out they were. Um, and I come around this corner of, in the jungle. It's jungle at that point. And this baby elephant pops up its head and looks at me and goes, oh, what are you? And so I slowed down and it's like, he's really cute, maybe five, six feet tall, just this sweet little thing, clearly interested in me. And suddenly there's this thump that I can feel up through the bike (laughs) and about 30 meters behind the little elephant is the mama elephant of all mama elephants. She was freaking huge. And so I I'm slowing just a little wondering if I can reach for my camera and she takes like three steps toward me and it's like, okay, you know, I dropped two gears and I'm up and moving. And she stops. And so I slow again. And she just picked up her her front leg. She knew what I was doing. She knew I was slowing down to look at them. She just picked up her front leg and thumped it back down on the ground really hard. It was like, you could feel literally feel the sonic wave. It was like, okay, I'm gone. (laughs) So here's this hilarious thing in the middle of suffering with dysentery and being disenchanted with the country. And, you know, the little elephant wanted to play. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's so funny. I've cycled in a reserve in India as well. And what they told us was, if an elephant comes for you, throw the bike at them. And I'm I'm like, that's fine if you're just cycling with a day pack. But you had everything on your bike. You're not going to yeah. be leaving your bike behind. <laughs> yeah. And throwing your bike at them. I'm sorry. They can move a lot faster. <laughs> yeah, not faster. <laughs> so... But- uh- but no, that's that's fantastic. I think it's and there's lots of uh, lots more stories in the book, obviously. But um, we can't we can't talk about everything now. But I do want to ask because you mentioned there that when you went past an airport, it was hard not to get on a plane. Um, so, but and you you've also said some interesting things. You said at the beginning, you said I have little connection to place, but you've also mentioned how homesick you were a number of times. So, what I guess what is home when you've travelled so much and you've moved around so much and you've just said you've moved again recently? Like, what what is home to you and what is travel? That's funny. It was that was my personal theme as I rode all the way around the world. I asked almost everybody I met for their definition of home because I didn't have one. 
And I'd been living for 20 years in Seattle at that point. And most of them were, you know, young, fresh out of college or Israeli military service or something. Well, my stuff's at mom's, so I guess that's home, you know. So, <laughs> um, but there were the best answer that I got was from this grizzled old bearded traveler in his 60s, had been on the road for 25 or 30 years. Um, and, and there's an amusing anecdote about that, but, uh, he just pointed to his wife and they had both been on the road for about 30 years together. Mm. And that was such an amazing definition of home for me. So by the time I got home, I got back to Seattle, I decided that Home was um, neither a place nor a state of mind. It was a circle of friends and a bed without bed bugs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and not a bike, presumably. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> eventually, I'm the lucky person that I can now point. And for 22 years, my definition of home sleeps beside me. I don't know what I did right to make that happen, but we've neither of us has connection to place her life was as jinky as mine in some ways so as long as we're together and then the modern world has made that easier because we can stay in touch with our daughter who moved to africa um but as long as we're together the rest of it is flexible mm, and i think that's another good lesson learned because you know you can make a physical you know you need somewhere to s safe to sleep and some food and some water um everything else is probably negotiable <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> except except that person as as you're saying um but it, but i wanted to just to cycle back cycle back to your cycle <laughs> trip um so when you got back uh i mean one of the difficult things is adjusting like to normal life because so you didn't spend much money while you were going around the world, but you didn't have any money. I mean, how did you adjust from being out there just living day to day to normal life and presumably getting work and doing, doing normal things again, rather than being on the road? It was hard. It was hard. I was, my friends opened their home, home to me. I came back and I had a bedroom. Uh, and I'd put a small amount of stuff in storage. A couple weeks later, I had rented a small place and put my life in it up on an island in the San Juans, a place that I loved. And uh, I would come down to Seattle to visit them, but life was moving so fast. It was moving so fast, I couldn't stand it for more than about 48 hours. And then just the drive, a drive I'd made hundreds of times, hour and a half up the highway, I would pull over two, three, four times to shake on the side of the road because everything was going so fast. In a year and a half, I pretty much hadn't gone over 12 miles an hour. Mm. Um, <laughs> and there are these stages as you travel at two weeks, you know, and you'll get this on a vacation. You know, you come back from a two week vacation, you go, whoa, I slowed down a lot. 
Well, there's a cliff edge out at six months and there's another one out a, a year where you notch down and you're moving, if not slower, more thoughtfully. And so to reintegrate was really hard. And I spent about six months up on the island trying to figure out how to get back into it. I was looking for odd jobs and temporary work and I never quite found anything. And by then I was really broke. So I uh, came back to Seattle. By that point, I could stand to come back to Seattle. And I got a job instead of creating multi-million dollar IT systems, I was got a job as a number three person in a three-person IT department. And I went around doing customer support. So users, it was at Seattle Opera. So these users were failed artists who found a job selling tickets for the opera. And I would go around and help them with their little computer problems. And it was such a, a shift. And even that was hard for me. But that's also the time I started writing. Mm. And so it took me 15 years to launch my writing career. But that became a focus from 1995 on was trying to learn about the craft and try and, and sold a couple books to a small press and just started working my way forward. I had offers to get back into the rat race and I just couldn't face it. I couldn't do it. But also so, maybe you had that perspective that you didn't, you didn't want that. I didn't anymore. want no, I didn't. It was no longer part of who I was. And one of the funny jokes is my friends, the ones I kept from before and after the trip, I didn't meet my wife till after the trip. And they still, to this day, check in with her to make sure that the old Matt isn't doing something insane. <laughs> That I'm not pushing her to do things she doesn't want to do and driving ahead with no plan and, you know, full chart. It's like, no, that's not who I am anymore. But they can't quite get their minds over there. <laughs> After whereas, so all the, long. <laughs> whereas all the people I've met since my trip have been like, oh, yeah, that's you. That's who you are. You're just this person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I've known you for a few years now. And yet to me, you're, you know, you're you're a writer. Uh, you're quite a techie writer, but you're, you know, that's who you are. You're a writer. But it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're a geek. <laughs> so I'm interested now. I mean, obviously, you did that big uh, trip and you do move around um, the US. Uh, you have, in the time I've known you, you've moved around. But what does travel mean to you now and how does it inform your writing? The. Travel isn't like I, I, you know, I've talked with you and obviously you have a passion for travel, for going places. And I'm pretty comfortable wherever I am. So I'm very comfortable being here. However, I'm also comfortable, almost as comfortable being there, wherever there is. So my wife has an interest in travel. My kid moved to Africa. So I'm willing to go to those places and be there and be present with the culture. And that then, I think, helps make my writing deeper and richer because it's more universal. It's less, you know, 
white male who grew up in New England and was a tech nerd in Seattle. I've also, you know, lived on the Oregon coast and hiked sections of the Cotswold Trail and, you know, sat on the beaches of Senegal. And I've done these different things. Uh, they help me make characters more interesting, more worldly. And that's one of the things that goes all the way back to why I write, which is something I discovered on the trip, is it's the old think locally, uh, think globally, act locally. Mm. I want to create a better world. I've always wanted to do that. Well, how do I go about doing that? I used to do it by trying to automate people's lives with computers from the 19 from 1980 I started doing that to try to make their job less tedious and more efficient and but with writing I found this bigger voice where I can try to address let's treat each other as people let me educate you a little about this crazy thing called the Dakar rally that swings through five countries of South America, let me, which I haven't seen yet, but I'd love to go to. Um, see, I want to go see the thing, which will then educate me about the place. But the desire to travel isn't the, the driver for me. It's more about the people and the environment, I guess. Mm. And what, yeah. I'll, what I'll learn. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I feel the same, although I love seeing kind of natural, natural things. I do find myself drawn probably more to cities and, um, places where there is uh, different cultures and, uh, you know, architecture. I love architecture. <laughs> so I'm a little um, architecture yeah. obsessed. <laughs> yeah. I'm drawn to the countryside. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I ran the college planetarium for four years. I, love of the being out where I can see the stars. Um, mm. I, and I grew up in a town of 1200 people and 10,000 head of dairy cow. So, you know, <laughs> nature, nature is supposed to be right there. It's not supposed to be, you know, a 40 minute train ride away. No, no, fair <laughs> enough. Right. So we're, we're almost out of time. So apart from your own fantastic book, Midlife Crisis on Wheels, um, can you recommend any other books uh, about cycling trips or round the world trips or anything that you think would also resonate? There are, well, there are the two that basically launched me onto the trip. Uh, Dervla Murphy, Full Tilt, is, and uh, she has a whole series of books, but she was a frustrated young English woman. I don't even remember when. It might have been the 50s. And she said, screw all this. And she put a small bag, which included some food and a revolver and a change of clothes, in the front basket of her three-speed English bicycle. And she rode to India overland. <laughs> she took the ferry to France and she went through all of Europe, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. She just rode and had amazing adventures and was welcomed everywhere and became a writer, a tra amazing travel writer. Uh, the other one, it's really the seminal book of bicycle travel is Barbara Savage's Miles from Nowhere. And 
it's about a woman who very reluctantly followed her boyfriend onto the road and came back a completely different person. And she wrote a book about it that basically founded the genre and then was killed shortly after while she was training for a triathlon on the road, was hit by a car. Mm. So her husband created the uh, a whole foundation to promote travel writing, especially on bicycles. It's still going today. Uh, so those are the, the two books that for me really did it. I've read a lot of sailing books. I love sailboats. So I've read a lot of books about um, from Crowhurst Last Voyage to uh, Chichester's Gypsy Moth Alone Around the World. I also love Arctic Adventure. So Admiral Byrd's Alone were about the first man to winter over at the South Pole. Uh, these are just amazing stories of people who had a passion and set out to pursue it and see where it led against all those fears and all those challenges. Mm. So that's my, that's my short list. I have a long list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all do. That's why I asked for it. Just a couple. I will add, um, Alistair Humphreys, an adventurer who's been on the show, also cycled around the world. I'm like, how do I know two people who've cycled around the world? <laughs> um, but Alistair's book is Moods of Future Joys. So if people want another uh, more recent book, I guess, about cycling around the world, that is um, available as well. So where can people find you and your books online? Everything is at ML Buckman, uh, M-L-B-U-C-H-M-A-N. That's dot com. That's Twitter. That's Facebook. That's how you find me. Fantastic. Well, look, thanks so much for your time, Matt. That was great. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.